Welcome to episode number 166 of the Northern Miner Podcast, a special holiday edition, and so a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holidays to everybody out there, mining and non-mining people all around the world. And my name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am online editor for the Northern Miner. I am broadcasting from London, not too far away from where we host the Canadian Mining Symposium. I'm here with my girlfriend, and we're visiting her family. So it is a very fun, interesting, special place to broadcast from. And I was telling Inez that everybody has to go to London once for Christmas in their life. This is definitely a Christmas city. I mean, there's a building that is like an advent calendar. So that is quite special. Uh, it, it's They're just unbelievable lights. If you look on YouTube, you'll see what I'm talking about. It is probably the most decorated city I've ever been to for Christmas. And you walk down those very expensive streets with uh, Gucci and uh, Bulgari and everything. Harems and Stella McCartney's her store is just spectacularly lit up. So everybody, just keep that on your little bucket list there because that is well worth the visit. So it's Christmas Eve. I'm reading Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which is the second year in a row. Actually, maybe the third year in a row I've been doing that. That's my Christmas read. And uh, yeah, Dickens, a spectacular writer, of course. And uh, I took a break from Jules Verne, which is what I was reading before. I was reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea for the first time. So I'm taking a break from that for the timing of the Christmas read here, and then I'll go back to that. And I was just thinking to myself earlier, if you're looking for a another little special gift for a miner in your life, Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. It's a page turner. I read it about 10 years ago. It was the first Jules Verne I'd ever read. And I read it in while I was taking the bus to my graphic design project manager job at a little digital agency I started at. People can say, oh, Jules Verne, I read that as a kid. Samuel Beckett, it's like if you do a little Google search on Samuel Beckett's top favorite writers, Jules Verne is right up there in the top 10. So Jules Verne needs no defense from me or Samuel Beckett or anybody else. But uh, just for those who might think that's just for the kids, uh, no, Jules Verne. And there's a lot of science in it as well, So, which brings us back to our podcast here. So it's a good gift for the miner in your life. It's not the perfect gift for the miner in your life. That's the art and humor of John Kilburn, cartoons from the Northern Miner. Um, but it's it's cute. If you are looking for a last-minute gift, if you're listening to this today, as we release it on Christmas Eve, or even Christmas morning, if you're searching for a gift, I've been there. You may want to consider a digital subscription or even a newspaper subscription to the Northern Miner. Uh, simply go to the top of northernminer.com on the desktop, and you'll see a subscribe button on the top left, right by About and Advertise. Just click on that, and you can get a quick little subscription, and you can wrap that up, put it in a card, and say, hey, I got you a really special gift. I got you a Northern Miner subscription. And so... That is also possible. And so, yeah, as I was saying, uh, here we start a new year. The Canadian Mining Symposium, usually we have that in May. I think we've done it in April before too, but last year was in May. And we also have PDAC coming up. That's on March 1st. So it's a little bit earlier this year. It's always that first weekend in March. And we also have the Mining Hall of Fame dinner, which is just around the corner. And that's on January 9th. We're going to have the Diamonds in Canada Symposium. And that's usually in late June. And, you know, before you know it, we'll be back at the Progressive Mind Forum. 
and we'll do it all over again. That's what we're going to feature here. It was a really cool presentation from the Progressive Mind Forum. Matt Sachs, who's given speeches twice at the Progressive Mind Forum, he's COO for Peak Power, and he has a really interesting company that he's a part of that really that helps basically find efficiencies where government and business intersects in, in relation to energy usage. So apparently, you know, he says in this presentation that because of the extra cost that you pay when you are using energy at peak power, that crazy as this sounds, eight hours of the year can account for 75% of your electricity bill. How crazy is that? Your annual electricity bill. Maybe I misheard. Take a listen for yourself and you tell me. Feel free to email us. Uh, at the Northern Miner. You know what? That reminds me, I'm also going to set up a podcast email account. So listen for that in the next two or three episodes. We're going to put a little podcast email so you guys can reach out, send us little emails and messages. And I thought that would be a nice little section of the podcast that we're always looking on ways to improve here. So if you'd like to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram, which just keeps growing. I'm really happy with the growth there. I don't know if it's because of this podcast or what. That's at at the Northern Miner. And you can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Before we get to this episode's news stories, I would like to once again thank our sponsors, Nevada Copper. And we are going to feature a fourth and final installment of their Nevada Copper project. We are talking to Nevada Copper's chief commercial officer, Mark Wall, and he told us about the team in this episode. So listen closely. It's very interesting what's going on there. Joining us again for the final installment is Mark Wall, chief commercial officer for Nevada Copper. And Mark, thanks again for joining us. Uh, Tell me about the team. What are we working with? Who's running this show? Thanks, Adrian. Great to be here. We are indeed very fortunate to have a tremendous team. On our board, we have our chairman, Stephen Gill, who is very experienced in the capital markets. We have our lead independent director, Tom Albanese, very well known, formerly the CEO of Rio Tinto, also Vedanta, on the board of several companies. Tom Albanese is a very well-respected, very experienced person in the mining industry. We have Michael Brown out of South Africa, a very experienced underground miner. We have Ernie Nutter out of Toronto, very experienced in the capital markets, a tremendous board. And then in management, we have our CEO, Matt Gilley, formerly the CEO of the Palabora Company, a a Rio Tinto subsidiary in South Africa, the COO of Oyutogolai, one of the largest copper mines in the world for Rio Tinto the chief technical officer for Barrick. He is a very, very experienced person. David Mm -hmm. Swisher, our operations SVP, Bram uh, Yonker, our CFO. We have a truly wonderful team that I feel very proud to work with. Excellent. That does sound very impressive. And how about yourself? How long have you been with Nevada Copper? I joined Nevada Copper in mid-2018. I was formerly the senior vice president of operations for Barrick based out of Toronto and I've got a lot of experience in the gold industry, and I feel very fortunate that Matt Gilley and the board asked me to come down and join uh, Nevada Copper. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much, Mark Wall. Uh, We appreciate 
the information. It's all very interesting, and uh, we wish you guys the best of luck. Adrian, very much appreciate it. Thanks for your time. And turning to the website, we have a big story on Damascolithium, and this was a contribution from Cecilia Jamazmi from Mining.com. We feature some of their stories here on the Northern Miner, their sister publication. And Namaska Lithium files for creditor protection amid market glut. And you may remember Namaska Lithium from our battery metals panel, which occurred, I believe, three episodes ago or so. And Guy Bourassa, CEO of, and president of Namaska Lithium, was lamenting the fact that there wasn't enough, basically, support for lithium processing in North America. And that this was basically giving everything away to China and who now dominates every stage of the lithium processing site. So here we go. December 23rd, Namaska Lithium files for creditor protection amid market glut. I'm going to read a few paragraphs here. Candace Namaska Lithium has filed for creditor protection following attempts over several months to find new investors and continue operations. The Montreal-based company is trying to avoid becoming the latest victim of an oversupply of the metal needed in the batteries for electric cars and high-tech devices, which has squeezed the market this year. Namaska said it had received approval from its board of directors to apply to the Superior Court of Quebec for creditor protection under the company's Creditors Arrangement Act. The company anticipates conducting a review of its operations and seeking court approval for a formal investor solicitation process. Through the process, Namaska aims to source additional financing, sell assets, enter a joint venture, or a combination thereof. They have been in talks with Mine Financier, the Pellinghurst Group, to secure a potential $600 million equity investment, but has yet to announce a deal. You really see here the difficulties. Like you Put it this way, if Namaska Lithium was in China, I don't think the government would think twice about going, well, of course we're going to support this because we want to dominate this industry. And here in North America, in the Western countries, we just sort of have this straight up, you know, laissez-faire capitalism. And so let's see what happens. Like, I mean, this is an interesting test case. Like, you know, like, let's follow Namaska Lithium and let's just see. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people have a lot of theories on economics and politics and all these things. Let's just look at the data. Let's just see what happens here. And uh, let's follow this story. I'm going to continue on here. Uh, Namaska Lithium shares, which have been suspended from trading, have dropped steadily since the company announced plans in November to place its Wabuchi project in Quebec on care and maintenance. In October, the company bumped up its estimate for the total investment needed for the project from $1.1 billion to $1.5 billion. These are pretty big numbers. As proposed, Wabuchi contemplates an open pit and underground mine northwest of the municipality of Shibugamau, as well as a processing plant in Shawinigan. The mine would have a production capacity of about 3,000 tons per day over an estimated mine life of 26 years. I'm just going to scroll down a bit. The main factor behind the price slump is the avalanche of new supply that has hit the market over the past year, triggered mainly by mine expansions and a cut in government subsidies for purchasers of electric vehicles in China. Yeah, and then there's quite a bit more on that. So you can read that on northernminer.com, also on mining.com. And yeah, so that's the latest with Namaska. Kind of a sad Christmas story there. We have a bit more on the M&A front. Anglo Gold Ashanti and I Am Gold to sell stakes in Sidiola Mine in Mali. 
South Africa's Anglo Gold Ashanti and its joint venture partner I Am Gold are selling their 82% stake in the Sidiola mine in Mali to Australia's Allied Gold for $105 million. The mine, I Am Gold's founding asset and one of three properties Anglo Gold Ashanti put on the chopping block this year, is also owned by Mali's government, which has an 18% interest. West Africa and Mali, I mean, this is, you know, there's Burkina Faso where we've seen some very serious security issues. One has to wonder, surely this is a factor in going through these CEOs' minds. Um, I'm just speculating here, but if I was a CEO of one of these companies, I would maybe be considering getting rid of these projects. I mean, when security goes down, it doesn't matter. You can have the greatest project in the world, but if you don't have security, it's, it's worth nothing especially when some of these organizations are even looking for these mines and trying to, like, I mean, that's kind of a newer thing. We see it in Mexico and we see it here in West Africa that they are actively targeting some of these mines. So it's possible that these companies are simply saying, let's not wait for something bad to happen. Let's get rid of it now. Let's see what Kelvin Dushnitsky, Anglo Gold Ashanti's CEO, says, quote, This transaction is in line with our disciplined capital allocation strategy, as we move to streamline our portfolio and intensify our focus on assets that have potential to build critical mass in the long term. And there's some explanation here. Dushnitsky, who took the helm in September 2018 after serving as president and executive director at Barrick Gold, wants to streamline the company's assets. As part of the plan, he is also trying to sell Cerro Vanguardia in Argentina, and the Maponang mine in South Africa. It's been a very intense year of M&A in the gold sector, and it simply continues. And we also have an outlook on our website from George Salamis, and you may remember him. He's on TNM Leaders and his Integra Resources. We have stories every so often with Integra Resources. So George Salamis is a familiar name on the website, and he has contributed a commentary outlook on 2020. And he thinks that 2020 will be good for junior miners. And I'm just going to read a little bit of this. 2020 will mark the resurgence of the junior miner. Well, <laughs> are these poor junior miners? I mean, I've been working in this as an online editor here since 2012. And it's actually been tough the last, that's what, seven years? The last six years have been pretty difficult for these guys. So, yeah, relief is always right around the corner. Hey, maybe George Salamis is right. Let's continue. We're starting to see some money invested in producers. Producers are feeling better about their own balance sheets, valuations, and multiples. And when you feel better, you start to buy. What are they buying? Advanced staged exploration assets and single asset companies in tier one jurisdictions with producing mines. But there are only a few of them to buy. Once again, scarcity reigns. Here's why it's going to be good for a junior miner in 2020. And he gives quite a few reasons, but the first is deals, deals, deals. The M&A we have witnessed in 2019 can be boiled down to mostly financial and technically burdened current and past producing mines. The senior producers have a stronger valuation multiple than the mid-tiers, and the mid-tiers have a better valuation multiple than the junior producers, and so on down the beaten up advanced explorers where the valuation discrepancy is glaring. The deck is stacked in favor of M&A and the stars are aligning between producers and advanced explorers and developers. Adding fuel to the fire and, and coming to a theater near you as a rerun 
We will start to see investors demanding growth from the CEOs managing these gold producers. We've seen this movie before in the last cycles, and we'll see it again. So a little bit of optimism, a nice sort of happy Christmas story End of your Christmas story from George Salamis of Integra Resources. Read his full story and outlook on northernminer.com. And also, we have a story from Klondike Gold, who's looking for the source of the gold rush, the Klondike Gold Rush. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, I guess my sort of simple view is they haven't looked for this yet, so I guess not. And so let's just read a little bit. This is by Ron Wartell. And this is a contribution to the Northern Miner. A few stories in mining history rival the lore of the Klondike Gold Rush. Photographs of hordes of fortune seekers climbing the Chilkoot Pass in the late 1890s are some of the most iconic in mining history. Some grand fortunes were made and many lives were lost. But more than 120 years after thousands of prospectors rushed into the wilderness to make their fortunes, no significant bedrock source for the gold was ever found in the camp. And curiously, no one seemed to be looking for it. In the decades since those wild years, the area's placer mines have yielded as many as 20 million ounces. Four years ago, mining financier Frank Justra hired geologist Peter Talman as president of Klondike Gold to hunt for the mother load. Quote, when we arrived back in 2015, we found a camp with little to no basic geological surveys, mapping, or data save for a regional geophysical survey done in 1987, and the last good fieldwork was done in the 1960s, says Peter Talman in an interview. And he continues, so we had to start with the basis that the source of the Klondike Gold is a grassroots exploration play. Klondike Gold believes the source exists. The, the exploration company now controls a land package of over 600 square kilometers, covering most of the Klondike Gold fields, starting just 20 kilometers to the southeast of the fabled Dawson City. Klondike Gold started with the premise that the geology is right for a bedrock gold source in the camp. The Klondike is located within the Tintina Gold Belt. The area holds significant gold deposits such as Donlin, 45 million ounces, owned by a joint venture between Barrick Gold and Nova Gold. Northern Star Resources Pogo property, which is 7.6 million ounces. And Newmont Gold Corp's Coffee, which is 4.1 million ounces. Pretty big deposits. Continuing on on just a bit of technical stuff here and here we go i'm just gonna give you a little bit of a primer from this work the company narrowed the hunt to the southeast of the junction point of the bonanza and el dorado placer creeks at the ghost town of grand forks i love those ghost towns they're just full of their story and lore and legend is written all over those empty buildings and continuing over the last four years, the company has completed trenches, channel sampling, and over 33,500 meters of diamond drilling. And the company's best hit in 2015 was in drill hole EC-1510 at Gay Gulch among the Eldorado Fault, which intersected 2 meters, grading 75.6 grams gold per ton, starting from 24 meters downhole, and included a 0 0.40 meter intercept of 420 grams gold. So that's quite the little intercept there of 0.40 centimeters of 420 grams gold. That's a really interesting, again, sort of where history meets, you know, gold investing and gold mining. And yeah, that's one of the great things about the mining industry, as I've said before, it's, it's got a, a nice lore, a nice legend, a nice romance to it. And I think you sort of see it a little bit in this story. And they have named themselves Klondike Gold after the whole Klondike Gold Rush. So... 
That is also on the northernminer.com. And finally, back to our diamond theme. Remember diamond sales? One of my favorite topics. Okay, so Lucera Diamond Sales beat expectations. Lucera Diamond is the latest miner to inject some optimism into a depressed market that was hit this year by an unforeseen oversupply. I don't know if how unforeseen that is, but it depends who you ask, I guess. I remember at PDAC people talking about diamonds, and there was definitely a sense that uh, this lab-made stuff was going to cause problems. But anyways, let's continue here. By an unforeseen oversupply and increasing demand for lab-made gems by announcing better-than-expected sales in December. So it's been a tough year, but sounds like December's been good. Uh, the Vancouver-based company, which operates the prolific Karoi mine in Botswana, fetched $52.9 million in the final tender held last week. The figure represents an average price of $548 per carat, about 40% higher than the company's average price achieved in the previous quarter. I don't always mean to be critical, on, but I mean, is this Christmas sales? I mean, this is December sales uh ex by announcing better than expected sales in December. I mean, so I would prefer to see year on year on this. Uh but anyways, they've December has gone 40% higher. So let's that's still pretty impressive. The proceeds also exceeded expectations by 16%, Lucara said, which suggests the market for rough diamonds is finally turning a corner. A little premature, I would say. I would say this is a good sign that maybe the bottom isn't falling out. Uh, let's continue. The December tender puts Lacara's 2019 revenue at $192.5 million, very respectable, beating the annual revenue guidance of $170 to $180 million. So Lacara's doing very well. Almost tempting to say they're on fire, they're doing so well. And we have a quote from Chief Executive Ira Thomas. Though it is too early to call a trend, prices achieved in our final sale of the year reflect a stronger, more stabilized market environment and continued strong demand for Karoi diamonds. Thomas noted that sales through Clara, its secure web-based digital sales platform, continued to increase this year as it grew its customer base well beyond expectations from 4 to 27 clients. Demand in recent online sales, Lacara noted, has now outstripped available supply. And the platform is ready to receive a larger quantity of third-party goods to support its next phase of growth. Trials with at least two other providers are anticipated to begin early next year, the company said. So the jury is out on this diamond situation. Some positive news from Lucera. To me, it's a wait and see. Let's see if this continues. Is this a blip? Is this Christmas sales? Is What is this? Uh, they're digital... Sales are very interesting, though. I mean, I think they're extremely smart because even if this, let's say, the general market were to go lower, they may be quite smart in how they're approaching it by creating a digital sales platform for diamonds, which may be a nice little hedge because it's not going to disappear. And maybe you can even sell lab-based diamonds out of there. I don't know. Another interesting development in the diamond space. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. Hey, 
And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at Infomine.com once again for providing us with this data. And if you ever want to find it on your own, simply put in Infomine and metal prices and you'll see the page that I am looking at. And on Christmas Eve 2019, December 24th, gold is at $1,491.56. That is about $13 higher than last week. Still below the psychologically significant $1,500 level. Silver is at $17.60, which is about $0.53 higher than last week's quote. Platinum is $8 higher at $939.26. And palladium is at $1,881.40. That's $110 lower than last week. So it is cooling off after its rocket launch last week. I mean, it's been rocket launching for two, three months, more, almost six months here. And so it has taken a little bit of a breather. And uh, remember Jeffrey Christian between, he sees Palladium between 1800 and 1900, and right now it's 1881. So right now he's doing pretty good. So let's see where it goes. And on December 20th, we have copper at $2.79 a pound, the same as last week. Aluminum is at $0.80, which is the same as last week. And lead is at $0.87, which is a penny lower than last week. And nickel is at $6.45 per pound, which is $0.03 higher. Tin is at $7.83 per pound, which is $0.03 higher. Cobalt is at $14.74 per pound, which is 90 cents lower than last week. And zinc is at $1.06, which is three cents higher. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Peak Power COO Matt Sachs and his presentation at the 2019 Progressive Mind Forum in Toronto. And again, a very interesting discussion, basically saying how advanced software is the key to getting value from advanced battery systems and showing how the energy grid can be a two-way street. It's not just the traditional consumer and utilities one-way direction that in fact in the future you could even get power at peak usage when energy is being used at peak usage in cities that even batteries from electric vehicles could contribute back to the grid. So impressive futuristic stuff but very realistic at the same time. And so here is Matt Sachs at the Progressive Mind Forum in Toronto. All right, thanks very much, uh, everyone. I'm really uh, happy to be here today. As was mentioned, I was here last year and I spoke about energy storage, basically large batteries, and how mines, especially in Ontario, are using that to reduce their energy costs. This year, I thought I'd go a little bit deeper into the tariff structures here in Ontario, but also the, the macro trends that are affecting energy tariffs, not just in Ontario, but around the world, and that movement towards dynamic pricing and how advanced software is actually the key to really getting the value from battery systems. So first, a little bit about Peak Power. We are primarily a software company, though we do uh, develop sites uh, with our installing large uh, battery systems. 
we really see ourselves sitting at the intersection of the grid edge and electricity markets. So just to kind of define that, the grid edge to us refers to where people interact with energy, where people use energy. So our buildings, batteries, obviously, solar power and electric vehicles, wherever we're using energy. And of course, the electricity markets, I'm referring not to the regular rates that we as residential homeowners pay, but the wholesale rates for electricity that are subject to real-time price spikes. So with our software, we're able to forecast spikes in electricity prices, and we use that information to more efficiently operate, could be a fleet of electric vehicles or buildings or batteries in what's known as a virtual power plant. So basically, we use our uh, software to efficiently operate distributed energy resources, and that has implications for the mining industry. I start pretty much all my presentations, if you saw me last year, with this slide to kind of ground the conversation, set the context of understanding the problem. Every piece of grid infrastructure is sized for moments of peak demand plus 15%. So that's the hottest days of the summer when everyone is using energy plus 15% to make sure that they have reliable power. That's wonderful, but it's very expensive. And the analogy would be, imagine if every highway was designed for Thanksgiving rush hour traffic, but left empty most of the time. Grid equipment has an asset utilization rate of about 20%. So again, as miners, imagine if you paid millions of dollars for equipment that you only used a couple of weeks of the year. That's the issue that's facing the energy industry. So of course, our bills are designed to understand this and kind of deal with this issue somewhat. This is a class A bill. Any of your Ontario mines would be class A customers. You have a component based off of your kilowatt hours. That's how much you consume. But two components based off of your kilowatts. That's your instantaneous draw, your peak instantaneous draw. Your demand charges are based off of your 15-minute monthly peaks. And your global adjustment charges, which I'll go into more detail, are based off of five hours of the year when all of Ontario is at its most constrained. So the amazing thing about this is eight hours of the year can represent over 75% of your electricity bill. So again, for in the mining industry, we're talking about millions of dollars being based off of just a handful of hours of the year. So the value proposition is tremendous to be able to forecast those hours, adjust your behavior, and take advantage of the savings. So now I'm gonna go a little bit deeper, and I'll move fairly quickly, but talking about what is the global adjustment, tariff structures in Ontario, and how they're actually changing over time. So the global adjustment has been around for, for quite a few years. It is basically a, a bucket of costs that are paid by all consumers. But the way that consumers in Ontario pay these costs depends on what class you fall in, and there's three classes. Residential and class B paced off of, pay off of their consumption, kilowatt hours. We're not gonna talk about them. Class A consumers, which are the large uh, energy users like mines, pay based off of these five hours of the year that I talked about in the last slide. So how do you become a class A customer? Well, you have to use a lot of energy. It used to be that if you used over five megawatts, you were considered a class A. Then the Liberal government over time lowered and lowered the threshold. So now uh, commercial buildings can also participate. But basically, it's any large energy user can participate in the program. This is uh, some screenshots of our software. Uh, on the right, that's all of Ontario's energy use and our software predicting the peak moment on one of the peak days of the year. 
And on the left, this is an example of us discharging a battery. So during that key moment, we send the signal to the battery to send electricity to the building. In this case, it was a commercial building that reduces their electricity load. The utility thinks they're using less energy, but really they're using the same amount of energy. Just a portion is coming from the grid, a portion is coming from the battery, and their bills are lower. It's actually a very effective program, and on average, Ontario is able to lower the peak amount. Again, think of the highways. They're able to take cars off the road. They're able to lower the peak amount by about 1.4 gigawatts because of the ICI program. It's a tremendous amount, so it is a successful program. However, the program has problems. And after roughly 11 to 15 years, I'm not sure exactly, of expanding the program, uh, under liberal rule, the Conservatives have come to power and decided to take a fresh look at it. So they're stakeholding potential changes to the program. And uh, in many ways, they're right that the program has flaws. It's not a perfect program, and it does need to be changed somewhat. So first off, there's a disconnect in the program. It was designed primarily as an industrial incentive. It's even in the name. The ICI program is the Industrial Conservation Initiative. It actually is a way to kind of subsidized industry without falling afoul of World Trade Organization rules. So it was designed for that, but it also benefits the grid. But that's a bit of a disconnect, and they don't always match up perfectly. And there are some areas where it bumps against what is the intent of this program. Probably the biggest criticism against the program is these global adjustment costs need to be paid. So it actually transfers costs from Class A customers to other customers, and then there's a the question of fairness. Is it fair for other people to be paying these costs? The bucket of costs that I talked about within the global adjustment is, I don't want to say random, but it's not directly related to peak demand. If you're considering this program as a grid management program, then it should be a service where you're paying for reductions in load. Therefore, the cost should be associated with the savings generated from reducing that peak demand. But as it currently stands, it isn't designed that way. It's just this big group of costs, and it just a, happens to be a benefit that we also get peak reductions from it. And then finally, the ICI program has been around since long before energy storage or batteries have been popular. It wasn't designed for batteries, and it doesn't fully value all of the services that could be provided by energy energy storage. So the main takeaway here is that there are changes that will be required to the program. The industry gossip, for those of you considering your investment or that have recently made an investment, is that they are not making wholesale changes. When I say they, the, con the conservative government is not making wholesale changes to the program. The gossip is that they are postponing any major changes till after the next election, most likely, and that they are trying to provide options so that this program will exist along with other options. But there will be changes. We just don't know what those changes look like. So let's go a step further and to say, what would a more appropriate program look like if you're not looking at it from an industrial incentive perspective? That's a political consideration that's beyond my area of expertise or to talk about. But let's focus on a program that reduces those peaks. Again, thinking of the highway metaphor from a grid perspective. What would a more efficient program look like? Well, in our opinion, what that would look like is some form of dynamic pricing, where the price of electricity is related to the true cost during those peaks. And in many cases, that would have a locational component as well as a time-based component. Put simply, think of supply and demand. If you want to 
get electricity to your house in the suburbs at night when demand is low, that should be cheaper than getting electricity to a commercial building in the center of the city uh, during the peak hours of the summer. So we believe that the, with new technologies, there's ways to actually create kind of a stock market of energy to really understand the true cost of energy to provide the right price signals. So we're doing it. Our company has got government funding to develop what we believe is going to be the world's largest transactive energy pilot right here in Toronto. So this pilot has a number of components to it, but uh, on a high level, we're taking 20 buildings. We're focusing not just on the tariff structure, the energy costs, but also trying to bring in electric vehicles. And I know that electric vehicles are also a hot topic uh, for the mining industry, but we're looking at it in a different way. We're looking at it to say, what if you could use the battery in that electric vehicle and take charge from that battery to reduce your peaks? So we're installing two-way bidirectional charging infrastructure with this vision that the participants in the program will fill their cars at home. We're giving them a, a home charging system. They're gonna drive to the city, and then during those peak moments, we're gonna use their battery and pay them for that energy to reduce the peaks during those key moments. Um, so we're installing all of this infrastructure and we're deploying software that's gonna forecast peak events, send the right market signals, those price signals, and optimize the operation of DERs to track all transactions. While this program is focused on an urban setting with commercial buildings and EVs, the concepts are applicable across the province and would be easily transferable to industrial settings as well. As you can imagine, um, in part due to the kind of scale and ambition of the project, we've attracted a lot of high-level partners. Just a few that I want to point out, the IESO, I mean, there's only one system operator in Ontario. Their vision is that they will manage the bulk generation, the nuclear generators, all the large generators, but they don't have visibility into micro-generation, batteries, buildings, electric vehicles. But over time, especially with the proliferation of electric vehicles, these distributed energy resources are going to become ubiquitous and going to have a huge impact on the grid. And the ISO needs visibility into that. So on top of providing the right price signals, we also provide visibility and control elements to the utilities and the system operators. So this is the last slide just to kind of show what that might look like. Like any market, there's a sell side, a buy side, and a platform to manage it. Typically, when you think of energy and utilities, you think of this one-way flow where utilities sell energy to consumers. Well, we're flipping that on the head. We're selling energy services to utilities. Again, go back to the highway metaphor. We're taking cars off the road when congestion occurs. It's quite simple if you think of it from that perspective. So on the sell side, we've got EVs, we've got buildings, or we could easily have industrial participants. On the buy side, we've got the ISO, we've got the local utilities, Hydro One, the system operators that have different energy demands at different times. And the exchange is a platform that basically does this real-time uh, price discovery of what the value of those services are. Okay, so uh, the reason I'm going into all this detail, again, I wanna always keep it applicable to your industry and what you're doing. I know that many mines are taking advantage of the ICI program. 
most simply, many mines are shutting down on the hottest days of the year. If it goes over 32 degrees, they just shut down with the thought that they're perhaps going to hit these peaks. Maybe they pay for a service that gives them some kind of forecast of when these peaks might occur. Other mines have invested in infrastructure, in batteries, in some cases very large and expensive batteries to take advantage of the program. Part of my messaging here is to understand the difference between the service and the value and the existing tariff and the program. The tariff, the ICI program, is going to change over the course of the next 10 years. There are certain fundamental aspects of the program that it will not be here for the life of that battery if you're buying a battery with a 10, 15-year life. Understand that, but don't be scared of it because the value of the services are very real. So as you make these investment decisions or choose companies to partner with, just keep that long-term view that the value that's being quoted for global adjustment abatement is not the true value of the services provided and is not going to be the true value of the course of the 10 years. So by no means am I trying to dissuade you from energy storage. The message here is that this is a new technology that actually has a lot of services and value that it provides to the grid. But do it with your eyes open of what you're getting into over the next 10 to 15 year period, which is the life of those batteries. Thank you very much. And I would like to thank you once again for joining me on this Christmas Eve holiday edition of the Northern Miner podcast. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Happy holidays. Feel free to review us in the Apple podcast directory and share it with your friends. It's a great time of year. We hope you have a really great holiday, everybody out there. And until next week, have a safe and happy holiday.